Hello, and welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people that teach it. I'm Dr. Joe Stoltz, and in this episode, I sit down with Peter Stark, author of Young George Washington, How Wilderness and War Forged America's Founding Father. A quick reminder before uh, we get started on that interview, though, uh, there are still tickets available for our fall lecture series starting uh, historian Mary Sarah Builder. Uh, It's on November 29th. This is the last one of a three-part series. Uh, It's been fantastic. Uh, I can't speak highly enough of of how uh, much, how great reviews the program has been receiving. And in fact, I will give you a money-back guarantee you will enjoy yourself. No, wait, I'm... I'm being told by my producer I can't do that. Um, okay, so no money-back guarantee, but you should definitely go see Mary Sarah Builder. Uh, she's a fantastic historian, great speaker, and, and you will not regret uh, coming to that last episode on November 29th. Uh, now, without any further ado and no more gilding of the lily, here's my interview with Peter Stark. Peter, thank you so much for, for coming on the show with us today. Oh, I'm so pleased to be here. This is such a great place. Yeah. Um, now, a little, little shameless promotion um, for us because we're not for profit and we need to do that as much as we can. Um, how did you come about writing the book and did you find any particular uh, places more useful than others? Well, that's one of the reasons I was really pleased to come back here to speak uh, after I finished the book, after spending basically four years researching and writing it, that this very library, the, the Fred Smith Library for the for the study of George Washington was one of the, my very first stops. And the staff here was just wonderful in helping me out. And um, I, I felt kind of enlivened and energized to go on with this with this big difficult project at least for me and likewise the I'm so impressed with the the Mount Vernon online resources. I mean, of course, Mount Vernon itself is an amazing mm-hmm. complex, and what the Ladies Association has done is just phenomenal. But I used every day when I was doing the research for this, I used the mountvernon.org because it's such a massive database of anything having to do with George Washington. And that was one of the first places I'd look for, for any information, and then there are often resources that are in the bibliographies or, or you know, for further research uh, that would set me off further. But anyway, I, I'm I'm deeply impressed with the 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 whole organization and the online database. I don't know how you people maintain that, but it's enormous. <laughs> it's an army of interns that help make sure the links stay working. Um, was uh, was there anywhere else? I mean, you know. Obviously, we're number one, but uh, was there anywhere else that, that you'd like to give sort of? Well, yeah. Well, you know, when when I when I do speak about this book and I've uh, Young Washington, which which I have done a lot since it came out in, in May, uh, I've been speaking all over the country. Um, I always say I like to give credit where credit is due, and I always give credit to Mount Vernon, and I give credit to the Library of Congress, mm-hmm. and I give credit to the University of Virginia, where their their um, you know their presidential papers project mm-hmm. that the and at the through the Library of Congress, there's a wonderful online resource called Founders Online. And I'm often asked in an audience when I'm giving a, a talk or a reading, how did you research this? And I said, well, you know, I read hundreds and hundreds of letters of George Washington. And they would they say, well, did you have to travel all over to find those letters? And I said, no, I, we could call them right up mm-hmm. here on your cell phone. It's, it's such a beautiful 
set up as a uh, database. Again, the the uh, papers of George Washington, which I think in the flesh, you know, physically on the bookshelf, are, I think they're 35 volumes or more. Yeah, they're not even done. Yeah, and they're not, yeah, they're not it's, even it's done. Gonna be, I think it's going to finish at like, I think the Revolutionary War series alone might end up being slightly over 35 volumes. Yeah, I think they're looking at like 88 volumes total. Over, okay, I mean, wow. You're going to need some serious shelf space. You're serious shelf space. If you, if you want the whole thing. But they, it's, in a, it's, a, it's yeah. a, in print, but online. I mean, Better literally, we could, yeah. we could call it up on our cell phones and I could, you know, call up, a, you know, a letter that George Washington wrote in seven, you know, April of 1753 and we could read it right here as easily as that. And the University of Virginia has been working on the fa- the, the, the papers for mm-hmm. a long, long for decades. And then the, the, they've, now they're, they work with the Library of Congress to put those online. So mm-hmm. I always give credit to those two institutions. And I, I tell people, well, if you're worried about your, your tax dollars being wasted, the Library of Congress is not one of the places they're being wasted. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, uh, the uh, fun fact for our listeners, because uh, one of the editors for the papers uh, project works here in the building and, and just uh, pointed out to all of us that uh, it is, I think next year will be the 50th anniversary of the Papers of George Washington project, um, which is one, happy birthday to them. Uh, and then two, keep in mind, they still probably got about another eight to 10 years of editing and transcribing to go because the guy just wrote so much so then you can get a sequel and then you get yes yeah. Yeah, you get a sequel and i and just to throw in a kind of a wonkish aside um in terms of research one of the one of the beauties of that project is that um the and the reason it's taking takes mm-hmm. so many years is that each one of those letters is annotated yeah. at the bottom and so often the the footnotes take up i mean usually almost a, a more more text than the than the letter itself because you can read those letters and have everything explained to you mm-hmm. why what uh, who the characters are on these letters and the events and the events leading up to them so you can read those letters kind of sequentially and get the whole flow of the story of George Washington great now I, I, I hope as a, as a writer you're going to appreciate the transition I'm about to do because we've been talking you know you're just talking about footnotes which were you know and, and, and the sources you used to write the books now we're going to go to the to the book itself see that's for for you like People that are worse writers than me, which is probably not many. Uh, that's it's, that's a transition. Um, <laughs> that is a tra- and transitions are 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 really important and often difficult. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what what uh, I mean, you, you, our listeners will will be able to, to go to the webpage and see the cover of your book, which you know has a, a stout virile um, George, which is pretty inspirational. But um, what drew you to write this book? Well, I really come at this from the from the adventure um, and exploration and wilderness side, and I've been an exploration and adventure and wilderness writer for for many years. I used to do the crazy things myself in the wilderness and write about my adventures. And then, as I got older and had kids, I thought, you know, I better I'm going to have I'm going to have <laughs> serious risk issues here. Yeah. And uh, so I started writing about other people doing the adventures, and I got into history of exploration. And I've always been um, fascinated with how people um, respond to to extreme stress, stress, uh, extreme situations in the wilderness. How how individuals mm-hmm. respond. And so, some you know, at least ten years ago, I was doing a, a book called "The Last Empty Places" on 
unpopulated areas of the country and looking at satellite photos of the U.S. at night and Western Pennsylvania showed up as a pretty good blank spot, mm-hmm. and I went out there to kind of research it. And I kept running across these stories about young George Washington. And young George Washington, in who's really kind of having a hard time and, and going through these harrowing wilderness experiences and, and making some decisions that were not always the best decisions. Mm-hmm. And um, that got me interested in this George, other George Washington that, that I did, whom I knew nothing about. You know, I, uh, like most that? Americans, I have the, the founder of our country, the statue yeah. George Washington. He wasn't always just the old guy on the dollar bill. He wasn't the yeah. old guy. In the, he was a struggling young man, like, like many of us are struggling mm-hmm. young people at some time in our life. And he was, he was definitely there struggling, struggling, thrashing through the wilderness. Um, so, so for our listeners that haven't had a chance yet to pick up the book, you know, could you sort of walk us through sort of the broad broad scope? Uh, yeah. The, so the broad scope is this book focuses on George Washington in his early years. Um, it's titled Young Washington, How Wilderness and War Forged America's Founding Father. And it focuses on the time that George uh, is be- between 21 years old and 26. Mm-hmm. So about five years of his life. And during this time, you know, George was from a very young age. He was a very ambitious guy from his teens, and he was always trying to kind of climb up in the aristocracy, the Virginia aristocracy. And his dad, his dad had died when George was young and given most of the plantation lands to George's older half-brothers. So George had to make his own way in the world, and he taught himself to be a surveyor, and he started surveying frontier lands. And then started making a living in his teens, and then uh, as part of his kind of furthering himself ambition, he signed up for the Virginia colonial, of course, this is 20 years or more before the revolution, colonial military at age 21, and volunteered right away on a difficult mission where the governor of Virginia, Governor Dinwiddie, was looking for someone to deliver a message from the Atlantic coast from Virginia, capital Williamsburg, deep, deep into the wilderness of the Ohio Valley. And of course, we're not talking about the state of Ohio. We're talking mm-hmm. about an area almost the size of France and it's wilderness. And of course, not the Indians who live there. And the message basically was directed at, at the French who were building forts back in this wilderness. And the French up in Canada were claiming mm-hmm. that whole Ohio is theirs, and the British on the coast were claiming it is theirs. And so the French were building forts. Governor Dinwiddie was indignant, sent George in. George had all sorts of crazy, difficult adventures in winter getting into the wilderness, weeks and weeks and hundreds of miles. And he gets there and, you know, formally greeted and and uh, by the French commandant, a distinguished gent, who gives him a you know formal dinner and <laughs> candlelight and French wine, you know, imported from Montreal, and uh, writes a letter and sends George on, George on his way. And you know, George struggles back through the wilderness, mm-hmm. almost dies several times, falling into rivers and on, in the ice and whatnot through the ice. And he gets back to the governor and gives him the message. And the governor is at the at the governor's palace in Williamsburg reads the message, and it basically says from the French commandant, "Well, our two empires are at peace right now, and um, I would very much like to maintain that mm-hmm. peace. But as to your request that we should leave, I don't think so. And that sets off a whole chain of events that." cause a whole lot of trouble. Um, George and uh, 
Governor Dinwiddie sends George back in at the head of a small military party to sort of send a firmer message and telling George, you know, be cautious, don't be the aggressor. And George does quite the opposite, and he ends up um, essentially thinking that he hears there's a French party that an Indian guides with him say that there's a French party camping nearby and they're going to attack you. And so George decides to essentially ambush them first. And best crawls, defense is a good offense. Yeah, the best defense is a good offense and crawls through the, they go sneak, George and his party go sneaking through the wet underbrush on a rainy night and come over the rim of a rocky gorge and they open fire on this French party down below. Well, it turns out the French party is having breakfast, and it it ends up being a terrible international mm-hmm. incident. The French party claims they're a diplomatic party. The Indians with George, you know, essentially tomahawk the French commanding officer and scalp a bunch of the, the dead and wounded. And George takes prisoners, and um, at that point, and, and George, you know, is this whole thing just is out of his control, mm-hmm. and he's saying... Um, well, uh, he's but he he takes a sort of cocky attitude, and he t- takes these guys prisoners, and he uh, he soon writes to his brother, um, you know, believe me, I heard bullets whistle, and there's something charming in the sound, and I'm going to drive the French back to Montreal. So there's this cockiness, and um, George, you know, a prudent commander would kind of pause there and mm-hmm. consult with the governor, and George does not. Instead, he marches forward and ends up in a claptrap little fort that he builds, and um, hundreds and hundreds of French and Indians attack him, and it ends up being a terrible slaughter of George and his, of George's men, humiliating surrender, and those are the opening events in the French and Indian War. So George eventually, to make a long, you know, long story short, ends up being, despite his his early mishaps, being a, a commander of the Virginia Regiment in that in that war, and um, he's extremely brave. There's never any doubt about that, and he ends up um, in, uh, responsible for guarding the Virginia frontier, where the settlers are, against attacks by Indian and, and French accomplices. And it's an impossible task, basically. I compare it to guarding the, the modern-day Iran or modern-day Pakistan, Afghanistan mm-hmm. frontier, where it's really mountainous, rugged. They're indigenous people who are very good warriors, and they know their way around. It's just really an impossible task. And so George really struggles with that. And he struggles with a lot of other issues during this five years. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 definitely one of those, um, you know, I think— we get asked a lot here at Mount Vernon, um, you know, why is why is Washington selected to be commander in chief of the Continental Army later? Um, and you know, there's there's the 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 sort of overly simplistic, silly explanation because it always gets brought up to like, oh, well, he's wearing a uniform at the 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 Continental at the the uh, Constitutional Convention, and so you know, like he clearly wants a job, and so you're like, okay. Yeah, I get the idea of dressing for the job you want, not the job you have. But like this notion that Congress just picked this guy because they could save twenty bucks on the price of a uniform. <laughs> Probably, I mean, like the Continental Congress is not the most well-run organization, but that seems a little stupid even for them. Um, and one of the things that you brought up that um, when I, especially when I'm talking with uh, a lot of our military groups that that come in to do um, leadership programming with us here at at the Washington Library, is as I bring up the the 
the fortifications that he has to sort of construct up and de- you know he's in charge of defending the Shenandoah Valley because it's like yes he's the colonel of the Virginia regiment which is the same title essentially that like a lot of New England guys like Artemis Ward and stuff that are going to serve in the American Revolution have um, but he's doing a fundamentally different type of job right they're Very they're different. they're colonels in charge of line units that are, are operating as part of a larger British army, and they're essentially just there as a, as a tactical element that just shoots and moves when it's told. Whereas Washington, after all the, the drama of Fort Necessity and Braddock's defeat and everything, right, like, Washington gets, just gets told, hey, you're the senior most military officer left in Virginia. Go figure out how to defend the Virginia western frontier. And he's having to figure out as a 25-year-old. Or younger. Yeah. I think 23 yeah. or 24. I think he's appointed. I, I, was, I, was, I was saying he's 23. It might be 24. But he's in command of almost 1,000 yeah. troops. And, and, you know, he is, he is responsible for figuring out all the logistical, like, where are we going to build the forts? How am I going to get those supplied? How am I going to get those provisioned and manned? Where do I need to put in ranger patrols to fill in the gaps? Like, that's, that's an incredible, that's a whole operational and strategic element that most colonels are not having to solve right that's that's what a general does and you know, so that's one of the points we make is is that it is is why your book's so great is that it this is such an underappreciated aspect of Washington's life because it is so formative for how he's going to become later you, you can really see it. You can just see these themes that emerge much later. I mean, de- literally yeah. decades later in his, when he becomes an adult leader, you can see them start to emerge during this period in his early 20s. And, you know, and some of them start to emerge because he's, you know, kind of tried all the wrong things. <laughs> and then he kind of figures out, okay, here's the right yeah. thing. And one of, the, one of the examples I often bring up that just in this, uh, military leadership vein that, uh, as I was just saying earlier, that after this attack on the French party, this ambush, that um, which gets sets off all sorts yeah. of trouble, and basically I mean, that's starts, where the French and Indian War begins. Right how many there. people can say they started a world war? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah, the French and Indian War, which leads to the Seven Year it's, War, yeah. which goes all the way around the world. Thanks for, you know, starting in this little glen in, in, yeah. in Pennsylvania, or what's now Pennsylvania. Of course, you know, there were a lot of tensions before that, but, you know, there was the spark. Yeah. And so, um, and George went, you know, kind of marching with a lot of ambition and kind of brazenly ahead through that those first mm-hmm. months. And then there came a point as he spent more time in command and, and, and had to deal with so many problems. But he started stopping mm-hmm. when he had to make a decision, and he would sit down with his officers and literally, I think, put them around a table as subordinate officers, and he'd go around and he'd ask every one of them, what do you think we should do? And he'd listen to their answer, and then he'd consider and deliberate, mm-hmm. and he'd make a decision, which he didn't do you know, in the <laughs> yeah. in the in the early going, and that becomes a theme that runs into his his commander in chief period and his presidential period, and and of course sets up the modern day presidential cabinet. And exactly, yeah. and I mean, say, yes, yes, exactly. That, that's, they're just direct 
direct line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I, and the, I think even the first one he has actually is when um, when he is charging ahead just after this uh, ambush of the French party and he is charging ahead and suddenly he hears that there's hundreds and hundreds of Indian warriors and French headed his way and he says, okay, Not that wait, what, yeah, what do I do now? And that's what, I think that's actually when he holds his first council of war that yeah. I'm, I'm aware of. Yeah, I mean, one of my uh, one of my favorite George Washington letters ever is is from this time period, and I, and I know you ran across it, um, but for our listeners, uh, it's it's the one he he's writing to some of his officers when there's clearly some downtime, uh, and he's he's I think he's been in charge for like three years at this point, and he's and he's telling them, uh, and I'm going to have to paraphrase the line here, um, you know that it's it's the actions, not the rank, that make the officer. And impressing on them how important it is to lead by personal example and to constantly be bettering and educating yourself. And he's like, you know, keep keep studying. He's like, we, we, we don't have the time to fight battles right now, but what we can do is read. And we can keep. And and I, you, you read that and you're like, okay, but seriously, bro, you're, you're like 24. And you're <laughs> – but he all of a sudden sounds like – He's very inspirational. He sounds like a, a just very well-developed, like, 55-year-old man. And, and to your point, right, this is somebody that, like, two years before was like, oh, hell yeah, I'm going to shoot me a Frenchman. <laughs> exactly. I'm going to drive them back to Montreal. Yeah. <laughs> no like, problem. So it's, it's just, it, it is, to your point, it is, it is amazing how much that region and these experiences transformed him. And, and, and you can see it. It's almost before your eyes as you, as you learn about that period of his life that in his early 20s. That, and, and that letter, that very letter that, that you speak of, is it, it really is an inspirational letter to say it's not your rank, it's what, you know, it's mm-hmm. your actions. And uh, the kind of irony of it is that for George, at the beginning, it was all about rank. I mean, mm-hmm. that he was really focused on his rank and his status, and he had went to great lengths to try to get himself uh, ranked higher than some of his his fellow officers. Um, he wanted a, 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 a British Royal Army commission. Yeah. He had a commission from the British governor of Virginia. So. He kind of he went through that period where it was about the rank, and then he started developing into the realization. Well, really, it's about the actions. Yeah. Oh, I mean, we've got uh, we've actually got a letter. It's right down the hall from us. Um, one of the ones he, he it's, it's actually the first military piece of correspondence, surviving military piece of correspondence that Washington writes. Right is uh, is the letter to Governor Dinwiddie right after he's taken command of the Virginia Regiment. And, and he's, he's writing to the governor. He's like, hey, um, we should get red uniforms for the Virginia Regiment because, uh, like, the Indians are afraid of the color red <laughs> and they'll fear it. And this totally isn't because if I'm wearing a red coat, I get to play at being a regular British Army <laughs> officer and be dressed the same as them. I promise that's not it. There's this whole Indian understanding you, Governor Dinwiddie, just don't get right. He literally cares more about sort of the sartorial choices and, and, and like how his rank would appear. How his rank, appears, how his rank yeah. would appear. Then, you know, again, flash forward two years later, and he's like, eh, you don't even really need epaulettes on your shoulder. Just like be, be a good leader is, is, is fascinating. Um, 
Now, did you, uh, you know, you, you, you have a background um, also going into to some of these wilderness places. You know, did you did you go out on location and uh, and and look at some of these sites yourself? I, I did. Yeah, I did. And I, you know, I, I did some paddling on the rivers that he paddled. I hiked along some of the the, the paths that he took. And one of the fascinating parts of this story is that uh, there are existing trails. That that he and the, and the Virginia Regiment and the British Royal Army used to go and mm-hmm. attack the French fort deep in the wilderness at what's now Pittsburgh. Um, it's called Braddock's Road, um, cut by General Braddock with 250 axemen marching in front. Mm-hmm. So that that trail still exists, and I, I hiked along there for a while. I, I did some. I camped on top of a mountain on where where Braddock's Road crosses a mountain top. Um, and uh, yeah, I did a I did a lot as much hands on exploration as I could. And one of the things I do uh, um, I really tried to bring to this book is that that a lot of the research that I bring to it are experiences that I've had myself in mm-hmm. the wilderness, and 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 you know, and I've been in some of these di- dicey situations, and I. I, I do personally know what it what it feels like to to paddle a canoe down a half frozen river, and I know what it feels like to break through the ice, and I know what it feels like to to um, travel through a snowy woods on a sub zero night when you're navigating by starlight or moonlight, and I, I try to bring that visceral sense yeah. to the George. Now, was there was there sort of. Uh, was there is there is there sort of one like particular aha moment that you can point to or or, or tell us about where um, you had, had maybe read some of the letters and then were out there and like something all of a sudden made more sense or or vice versa you you had been out there and you read the letter and you're like oh I remember that rock formation or I mean did you well I I think one of the things that that really struck me is spending time out in that western Pennsylvania mm-hmm. area and I, I live in the in Montana in the Rocky Mountains so I'm I'm used to those mm-hmm. entirely different kinds of mountains and and the forests aren't very dense in the Rocky Mountains yeah. um, I, I grew up in Wisconsin so I I, I know eastern <laughs> hardwood forests but um, I've been years and years in the, hiking around in the Rocky Mountains and so to come to the, uh, the these very wildernessy areas still wildernessy today in in western Pennsylvania and hike through some of these these deep glens in the mountains and forests and it's it can feel so claustrophobic and that that visceral sense of you might be some somebody might be watching you mm-hmm. and and which turned out to be very true that there are Indian warriors who are so deft they're so good at 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 woodcraft and so stealthy and when I was in those forests, after you know having read some of the, the incidents, um, to feel that sort of sense of paranoia mm-hmm. one might feel um, if you were alone in the forest or with a small group, and and wondering if you were being stalked in some way, and that 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 particular incident when on this early. Uh, on that on his first mission into the wilderness out of out of several um, when he and his guide Christopher Gist think they're being chased by Indians through this snowy forest when George and Gist I mean they run I think for 40 hours straight I calculated almost I mean almost the whole time and I had such a sense of wow how that 
how you could feel that mm-hmm. paranoia and anxiety just not knowing who's behind you. And plus they were leaving tracks in the snow and yeah. that, that that was really unnerving them as well. Yeah, I mean I think it's it's hard uh, I think for a lot of people to put themselves in the mindset of early America. Um, just in the physical sense. Um, and I know that's it's something, uh, I think it's in Radicalism or the Re- American Revolution or uh, it's in, in one of one of Gordon Wood's books when he he, he, has, he makes a point that, look, even if we call it the same thing, it's not, right? Because because the United States in the 18th century is not the United States today in, in a political sense, in a social sense, in a cultural sense. Right? Like New York City is still New York City, but New York City in 2018 is substantially different than New York City <laughs> in 1776. And... and, and I, yeah, I, to your point, like I don't think a lot of people really – I don't think enough Americans get out into the woods and nature enough to sort of be able to really picture just what colonial North America would have been like. These people were tough. I mean, they were – you know, if you were a colonial – American on the frontier, you were tough or, or you were dead. I mean, mm-hmm. you had basically two choices. Um, and I, I've written about that quite a lot. I wrote a, a, a book called Astoria about the big expedition mm-hmm. that came right after Lewis and Clark across the continent. And it, 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 just, it just knocked me over every time to read what these people went through and how they traveled. And likewise with the era of, of, of Washington and the um, French and Indian War and that frontier, and, you know, the, the ruggedness of the landscape and the forest, and you see these mountains, that then they're, you know, trying to drag cannons over these mountains yeah. with the British general. It's just people don't really conceive when you're driving down a four-lane road that's winding even through these mountains and going through tunnels. It's just, it's such a different world now. Well, and, and, and it's, it's funny because even, even back then, right, people that hadn't been to colonial North America, right, say Edward Braddock. Exactly. You know, he's like, oh, well, I'm going to bring a bunch of cannon with me. We're going to go up to this place that's one day going to be called Pittsburgh. I'm going to pop some shots at the French, and then they're going to surrender. And you get, like, a young George Washington going, no, but seriously, like, you're from the Midlands in England. Like, you have no clue what these forests and mountains Exactly. And, like. and, the, and the British planners, I mean, you know, they're, they've got their maps laid out, and, yeah. you know, in London and, you know, in some huge mahogany table under the chandeliers with the fire blazing. And it's like, oh, yeah, we the force of the British Empire is going to drive right through here and over this mountain, and then we'll get to the to the forks. And it so much didn't happen that way. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, it, sort of similar to what we were just talking about, right? Like, it, we think we take for granted, we take photography for granted. Right. And, right we, I've never been to South Saharan Desert, but I know what it's going to look like when I get there. Uh, and it sounds stupid, but like I remember the first time I ever actually saw Manhattan and the Manhattan skyline, first thought in my head was, oh, it looks just like in the movies. Well, of course it did. They filmed it on location. This wasn't like something they had to CGI, right? But in the 18th century, they don't have photography. They don't even really have great, I mean, they barely have decent maps of these things, much less. Yeah, they, or they didn't views. in this case. They yeah. had very, very little in terms of maps. Yeah, and so it's just, you, it, it really is wilderness in... Like yes, there are people living there, but like in the in the true sense of wilderness of, of just a natural environment, it's just it had to be um, awe inspiring and and terrifying. And that that's one of the the 
aspects of wilderness that I've emphasized in my writings and and in this book too is basically when you're in the wilderness almost by definition and there are a lot of different definitions mm-hmm. of what wilderness yep. is or if it even it even exists but in my mind a big part of being in the wilderness is being in the unknown mm-hmm. you don't know what's ahead you don't know exactly where you are you don't know what's out there if you knew everything, you wouldn't really yeah. be in the in what I consider the wilderness. And to be in that situation can be really unnerving. I've, I've felt that, and I went down an unexplored, unpaddled river in Africa in a kayak expedition many years ago, and it, that was the unknown. You didn't know what was coming around the next bend, whether it was hippos, crocodiles, yeah. waterfalls. You had no idea, and it was it's very unnerving. So, so in that case, you do you like. Go back and read *Heart of Darkness*, and you're like, "Oh, that's terrifying." Like, it's <laughs> yeah. just, well, you, you really have a much more yeah. visceral sense of what it's like, and yeah. and, that, and that's that's partly what I've tried to bring to this book is that visceral sense of what it is like to be out there. Yeah. Um, well, again, the book is called *Young Washington* uh, by Peter Stark. And uh, Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was awesome. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Yeah, it was really fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.